Well, as people are kind of filing in, let's um, let's take our Bibles this evening and open them to the book of Zechariah. Chapter 14 and verse 12. Um, As you guys know, uh, we're coming to the end of our study on Zechariah. As Jim uh, mentioned in the prayer time, God raised up Zechariah who had a ministry about 520 to 518 B.C., really to, along with his contemporary Haggai, uh, encourage the nation of Israel who had returned from the Babylonian captivity to get busy rebuilding the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed um, 70 years earlier. So this is the four-part four four outline of the book that we've been using. Um, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6 is basically a call to repentance. Why aren't you rebuilding the temple, in other words? It's his message there. And then chapter 1, verse 7 through the end of chapter 6 are eight night visions that Zechariah saw in a single night. I woke up last night about 4.30 with a dream that was so weird. I don't, I couldn't even describe it. It was so weird. Uh, Has that ever happened to you? Uh, Yes. I couldn't imagine having eight of them in one night, and that's what Zechariah had. But his dreams were a little bit more sane than mine are. His were All his dreams were given by the Lord, and they all revolve in one way or another around God's plan for the temple. And then you move into chapter 7 and 8, part 4 of the book, where Zechariah is asked a question. The question is, should we keep mourning the temple now that it's being rebuilt? So they had started this kind of ritual in Israel, you know, mourning the temple and its destruction at Nebuchadnezzar's hands 70 years earlier. And Zechariah's answer to that is basically, you guys have turned this into just a religious ritual. Instead of mourning the, mourning the destruction of the temple, you should be mourning the reasons that led to the destruction of the temple, which was their unfaithfulness to God's covenant. So they had gotten caught up in the ritual and had forgotten the reality behind the ritual. And that's Zechariah's point there in chapters 7 and 8. And then you come to the last section of the book, which is the two burdens. His first burden is fascinating because it's prophecies about the first coming of Jesus given over 500 years in advance, how the nation would reject her own Messiah, 
you know, right down to the number of pieces he's going to be betrayed for. And that rejection, in turn, is going to take all of the kingdom blessings that God wanted to bring to Israel through her king, and it's going to take those blessings and put them in a state of postponement. And that's basically the major point of chapters 9 through 11. But fortunately, chapters 9 through 11 is followed by chapters 12 through 14, where he gives his second burden. In fact, if you look at chapter 12, verse 1, it says, The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. So this is burden number two. And it's in burden number two that he predicts that Israel, through a time of distress that we call the tribulation period, will receive her Messiah, the very Messiah they rejected 2,000 years ago, and then the kingdom blessings that God wanted to bring 2,000 years ago will become a reality for Israel and the whole world. So chapter 12 is all about Israel's physical and spiritual salvation during this time of unprecedented distress. Chapter 13 is a description of the physical and spiritual cleansing that God will do for Israel when they come to their senses and embrace their Messiah. And then chapter 14, where we find ourselves, the tail end of chapter 14, is the kingdom and the kingdom blessings that will come. So chapter 14, verses 1 through 7, is essentially Jerusalem's deliverance that God will bring to her when every nation in the world will be against her. And yet tiny Israel will bow the knee to Christ. And God will deliver her when she doesn't have a friend in the world. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. And then chapter 14, verses 8 through 11, which we tried to tackle last Wednesday, is what the kingdom is going to be like. So our perspective on this is basically what's called premillennial, meaning Jesus will come back first, pre, and then you'll have the millennium, which is a Latin word for a thousand years comes from two words, milli, a thousand, annum, years. And it's going to be a wonderful time period on the earth. But basically what we're teaching and what we believe Zechariah is teaching is don't expect it until Jesus returns to a converted Israel at the end of the tribulation. So it's a time period that the Lord instructed us to pray for. He said, pray like this, thy kingdom come. I mean, why even pray that when we don't fully understand what it is? Well, Zechariah explains this time period to us and why we should be praying for it. So as we tackled last Wednesday, we saw a description of Jerusalem's waters, the earthly reign of Christ, the topographical changes 
the geophysical changes that are going to come to the planet when this kingdom comes. And then we saw a description of the millennial Jerusalem where Jesus, Yeshua, will be reigning on David's throne from planet Earth. Uh, it will On planet Earth, I should say. It's just as literal as was his first coming when he came to suffer and die. This physical return of Christ is exactly the same way. He's in a body. He's got feet. They touch the Mount of Olives, which will split. He sets up his millennial headquarters in Jerusalem and rules the world, the book of Revelation tells us, for a thousand years. And it's at that time in history that God will deal with all of the enemies of Israel, which we see described in verses 12 through 15 of chapter 14. And we're going to look at those verses this evening. And if time permits, we may get beyond those verses where beginning in verse 16 through the end of the chapter is a description of the kind of worship that will exist in the millennial reign of Christ. So you can take uh, verses 12 through 15 and you can divide it up with this outline. I hope you like the letter P. We've got a plague, verse 12, a panic, verse 13, a plunder, Verse 14, that's why I've entitled this um, Plundering the Plunderers. And then the last one there, verse 15, dealt with animals, and I couldn't come up with a P, and then it occurred to me, I'll just call them pets. (laughs) So (laughs) plague, panic, plunder, pets. So notice the plague. Uh, Zechariah 14, verse 12, it says, Now, this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. So God has a record of the nations that attacked his nation um, during their time of great distress And God promises that he will exact a plague on all of these rebels. This uh, doesn't surprise us because that's what God said he would do going back to 2000 B.C. when he was dealing with the patriarch Abraham, who God used to begin the Hebrew race. And we've been studying his life on Sunday mornings in our tour through the book of Genesis And as God began to call Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, telling him to walk by faith, promising him he's going to make a great nation through him, he gave him this promise. And frankly, I don't see any statute of limitations on this promise. In other words, I don't see anything where it says this is good until March 3rd or something. To me, this is an eternal, immutable principle. And the nations of the earth, including our own nation, have a difficult time learning this lesson, that the nation that comes against Israel will be cursed. So God says all the way back in Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, 
And the one who curses you I will curse. Why? Because in you, Israel, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God has purposed to bless the world through Israel. And the moment God made that promise, he knew that Satan would try to destroy Israel. So a companion promise or an accompanying promise is I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. Now you'll notice in the yellow Underlining there that I've got two Hebrew words. Uh, It's the same English translation, curse, but there's one word, kalal, for the one who curses. And then there's a second word, aor, I think is how you say that, for God's curse. And when you examine these in Hebrew, what the first word means is a light offense. A glancing offense, a non-fatal offense. Anyone who gives to the nation of Israel a light offense, God says, I will give you the second word, which is a heavy offense. So a light offense against Israel will bring forth a heavy offense from God. That type of perspective doesn't show up in an English translation, but when you're reading this in Hebrew... Basically, that's what it says. And you can just track it right down down through history. That nations that have monkeyed with Israel, persecuted Israel, find themselves on the ash heap of human history. Whether it's great powers in the Bible, like Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome... Um, You can just track it right down to almost the day that those nations came against Israel unfairly. God basically began to mark their decline as a power. You know, you take someone like Adolf Hitler, who was bringing in the Third Reich, which was supposed to last a thousand years. And of course, it was through Hitler that the horrible Holocaust came to the Jewish people. And what was, you know, supposed to last a thousand years, the Aryan race, and you know history, what happened to them. Um, it's the same with Britain. Uh, it, it was once said of Britain that the sun never set on the British Empire. Right down to the time where they historically turned their back on Israel. And I don't know what it is with superpowers. They all think they're the exception to the rule. Uh, It'll be the exact same rule, God forbid, if our nation continues in the same trajectory that it's in. Pastor Jim mentioned the midterm elections. That's always something to think about when you vote for somebody or against somebody. Is Where does that particular candidate stand on the nation of Israel? That will largely, if I'm understanding my Bible correctly, determine our um, prosperity and thriving and existence and continuation as a nation. So this is why God is going to bring a plague against the nations that go to war against Jerusalem. And it's sort of a flashback to Zechariah 12 where in the tribulation he's actually going to bring a a plague. 
Actually, God is pretty good at bringing plagues against nations. There's a whole book of the Bible that describes one or a series of plagues. Anybody know what book I'm talking about? The book of Exodus, ten plagues. Of course, Egypt at that time was the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. And God drowned the Egyptians in the Red Sea. Why would he do that? Because early in the book of Exodus, the Egyptians were drowning God's people, the babies, you remember, in the Nile. Uh, God, in plague number 10, killed the firstborn all over Egypt. Why would God do that? Because Exodus 4, verse 22, calls Israel God's firstborn son. And God says, if you mess with my firstborn, I'm coming after yours. So I think if there's a mistake I've made in trying to understand this, it's not taking it literally enough. I mean, this is God saying, this is what I'm going to do. And so it's no surprise that he would bring this plague against the enemies of Jerusalem. And then you continue on there with verse 12, and it says their flesh... I mean, this is not seeker-friendly teaching right here, is it? It says their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. And their eyes will rot in their sockets. And their tongue will rot in their mouth. You say, well, pastor, what is that talking about? I really don't know. Other than... When I get the opportunity to do talks on the signs of the times, you know, the signs that will be in place before Jesus comes back, I have a list of seven signs I talk about, but one of them is technology. I believe that the Bible lays out a lot of technology, most of which was probably mysterious to the Bible reader, or writer, I should say, who received God's original message. But I do believe that human history has caught up to the technology that the Bible speaks of in the last days. For example, there's a prophecy in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, of the two witnesses being killed in the city streets of Jerusalem. And it talks there very clearly about how the whole world will watch them die And come back to life. Now, I have a lot of older commentaries of the book of Revelation in my library. I get a lot of amusement trying to watch these guys 200 years ago make any sense of that passage. But we don't have to really guess as to what it's talking about, do we? I mean, I just got back from Jerusalem. And there are cameras everywhere. I mean, I could take you to websites right now that will show you exactly what's happening in real time on the Temple Mount, at the Wailing Wall, etc. So it takes no imagination today in the year 2022 to understand what Revelation 11 is talking about because history has finally caught up to the time period the Bible speaks of. And so with that being said, 
this very well could be some kind of atomic explosion or, or reaction, nuclear reaction. A lot of people look at it that way. Some kind of reaction in the body uh, related to WMDs, um, chemical weapons, nuclear weapons, atomic weapons. Jesus made this statement concerning the end times in Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22. He says, For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And look at this next line here. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, that's Israel, those days will be cut short. And Jesus is talking about a time period when all of life on planet Earth could be wiped out. And if God allowed the seven-year tribulation period to go longer than seven years, that's what would happen. No human being would survive, including Israel, which God can't allow to happen because he's got to fulfill his covenants in the millennial kingdom by way of divine promise in and through Israel. So you ask yourself the question, how have most of the wars in human history been fought? I mean, they've been fought with weapons that are lethal, but they don't have the potential of wiping out the human race several times over. I mean, most wars in human history have been fought with with spears and clubs and bows and arrows and you get up to the time of the American Revolution and the Civil War, you've got, you know, cannons and cannonballs and Anne and I visited Vicksburg and uh, they have some ancient or historic sites set up there where you can still see the, the cannonball from the Civil War you know, lodged into the wall. Um, lethal weapons, but you can't destroy the world's population several times over with weapons like that. So what, what in the world do you do with Christ's statement that all flesh had the potential of being wiped out? I mean, what do you do with things in the book of Revelation? We're in Revelation 6. If you look at my four fingers here, a quarter of the world's population is eliminated. That's Revelation 6, verse 8, leaving 75%. And then you get over to Revelation 9, about verses 13 through 16, and it says a third of the world's population is wiped out, leaving two of four fingers. 50% of the world's population is destroyed. I mean, that you can't do that with bows and arrows. And yet today, technology has caught up with the scenario the Bible talks about because we're sitting on top of post-World War II, you know, uh, Nagasaki, Hiroshima, atomic weapons. We're sitting on top of weapons of mass destruction that are far worse, nuclear weapons. We're sitting on top of chemical weapons. Or you remember Saddam Hussein turned chemical weapons against his own people. 
in mass murder. And so all of a sudden, you know, you're not left scratching your head as, as to the type of scenario that Christ is speaking of. I mean, all of a sudden, the whole biblical scenario makes perfect sense, uh, given these innovations that, that we now have, these weapons of mass destruction. So is that how God is going to fulfill these prophecies? I don't know. Maybe he'll use nukes. Maybe he won't. I mean, he did a pretty good job on Sodom and Gomorrah without nukes. So God doesn't need nukes. Uh, I'm just saying the, the, the time period that we're living, and as we keep moving through history, the scenario gets clearer and clearer and clearer. It gets more and more credible. It doesn't get more ambiguous or weird. And we're the, the generation that's privileged more than any other generation to see all of these things come into existence. And so that's what could be described there at the end of verse 12 when it talks about their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. How many pastors have you ever heard ever teach on this verse? Their tongue will rot in their mouth. I mean, a lot of people with, with knowledge of nuclear weapons will say, well, that's what it's, that's easily what it could be describing. And it's kind of interesting how the Biden administration, you know, just recently, within the last couple of weeks, is using the, the word nuclear, talking about the conflict with, with Russia. Uh, and he's, he's even using the word Armageddon. Well, that sounds like a biblical word I've heard before, Armageddon. And so, hmm, am I a date setter? No. Uh, what I'm saying is we better start paying attention to what's going on. Because if I'm understanding things correctly, if you're understanding things correctly, I mean, we are like on the cusp of the whole biblical scenario for the end times coming into existence. If the Lord tarries and another generation comes after us, I mean, they're going to be all that much closer. So those are technological signs for the end times. So God is going to send a plague against these enemies. And that's going to cause the second P, which is a panic, as you might imagine. I mean, if your tongue just dissolves in its mouth, I mean, that would cause a little fear, wouldn't it? Uh, and it says there, it describes this panic there in verse uh, 13, and it says, it will come about in that day. And that word or expression in that day is used all the way through this chapter. You'll see it in verse 1. You'll see it in verse 3, towards the end of the verse in that day. Uh, you see it again in verse 9, in that day. And here it is repeated again in verse 13. So God, through the prophet Zechariah, is calling the prophet's attention to a specific time in history uh, when these things are going to transpire. What's going to happen in that day? There's going to be a panic. It will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them. So God causes panic. Uh, this is one of the ways God defeats his enemies by putting them into a state of fear. 
And once they are put into a state of fear, many times they will turn on each other. So they'll kill each other. Meaning God's people don't have to even go to battle. And you see that at the end of verse 13. It will come about in that day that there will be a, it doesn't just say panic, it says great panic from the Lord will fall upon them and they will seize one another's hand and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. So it looks to me like it's an internal conflict uh, in the enemy army where God allows them to fall into fear and they start to kill each other. You say, well, this is a real interesting battle plan. But if you know your Bible, you know that God has used this many times. Uh, one of the times he used it is in the book of Judges, chapter 7, verse 22, concerning uh, Gideon. And I forgot the people group that Gideon was fighting. Does anybody remember? The Midianites, wasn't it? And you remember the story of Gideon, and we've actually been to the land of Israel, to Gideon Spring, you know, where the troops uh, that you know took water and weren't looking upward, you remember, they were dismissed, send them home. So Gideon had this big army that he thought he was going to use to rout the Midianites, and God started to reduce the number. Why would God reduce the number? Because God doesn't need the army. He doesn't need the army of the Lord. When the enemy army is in a state of panic that they start fighting with each other. And this is how God brought down the Midianites. Gideon didn't have to do much. Judges 7.22. It says, when they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another even throughout the whole army. And the army fled, and it tells us uh, the places that they fled to. So we don't even need a battle. They went into a state of panic. They started to kill each other, and they fled. So that's why the Lord told Gideon, you got to just send some troops home. Because I've set this up where this army of Gideon is not going to receive the glory For what I'm about to do, the glory is going to go only to the Lord. So that's why there's so much in the Bible about, you know, uh, don't, don't look at the outer appearance. Some of you need to hear this because you're in circumstances that look really big to you. They're, They're bigger than you. An employment situation or a financial situation or relational situation, health situation. We get very panicked when we look at the circumstance, which is bigger than us. The Lord keeps saying, don't look at that. I've got this under control. God has all kinds of ways of bringing victory that we haven't even contemplated. And a lot of times we don't even have to go out and fight. Uh, God has orchestrated things so that the fighting is unnecessary. That, by the way, is what's going to happen with the famous or infamous Gog and Magog invasion, where Russia, Iran, and Turkey 
with a host of other nations are going to invade Israel. The way I've taught it is towards the beginning of the tribulation period. And it says in Ezekiel 38 verse 2, I will call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. So they're going to start fighting each other. And this is how God is going to bring the victory. And so that's what you see on display there in verse 13. It will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them. They will seize one another's hand and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. So we've got the plague, we've got the panic, and then we have the plunder. That's why I've entitled this Plundering the Plunderers. And the plunder you can see there in verse 14. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem. You'll notice that there's an emphasis on Judah. Judah, one of the tribes of Israel. Uh, Judah's tribal area was given in the book of Joshua. You see I've got a circle there around it. Why does Judah always get special attention? Because there's a prophecy that goes all the way back to Genesis 49 verse 10 that indicates that the Messiah, when he comes in his first coming, is going to come from which tribe? The tribe of Judah. This is what um, Jacob said at the end of his life. He said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. That's a reference to the Messiah. And to him will be the obedience of the people. Uh, We're coming up on Christmas, aren't we? I mean, I know it doesn't feel like it, but it will be here pretty quick. And here's the verse that's going to be on all your Christmas cards. Micah 5.2. Prophecy about the birth of Jesus. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago from the days of eternity. It's a prophecy of the Messiah coming 700 years in advance. You'll notice that the Messiah is coming from the tribe of Judah, from a little city called Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephratah, uh, about two miles from Jerusalem, to distinguish that Bethlehem from another Bethlehem in the land of Israel, in Galilee. So just like an American city, um, can have you can have the same city named throughout the United States. Israel had two Bethlehems, one in Galilee, one in the tribal area of Judah. And the prophecy of Micah is that the Messiah is going to be born in the Bethlehem in Judah. So the Messiah came from Judah, not Galilee. 
in fulfillment of Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. So Judah is a tribe that's always special to the Lord. So I think that's one of the reasons why Judah is referenced here in verse 14 in the end times. Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And what's going to happen? And the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered. Gold, silver, and garments in great uh, great abundance. So why did the nations come against Israel in the last days? Well, Ezekiel 38 verse 12 tells us. To get their spoil. It says in Ezekiel 38 verse 12, to capture spoil, giving the motivation of the attacking nations. To seize plunder. To turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired cattle and goods who live at the center of the world. So what this is predicting is the nations are going to come in the last days to seize Israel's wealth. Which means Israel has to become wealthy. Now in 1867, when Mark Twain visited that part of the world, not only was there no wealth, there was no Israel. There was nothing but a barren expanse, he says. He wrote about it in a a book he wrote two years later, 1869, called Innocence Abroad. And so what a ridiculous prophecy this looks like. But in our lifetime, generally speaking, Israel has become a nation, check, and she is in the process right now as I speak of becoming phenomenally wealthy. Her gross domestic product outstrips that of her surrounding neighbors. And there are trillions of dollars of mineral deposits which are now identifiable in terms of wealth in the Dead Sea. Israel has discovered natural gas off her northern coastline. And if you want to track down Israel's oil discoveries, just Google Oil and Zion, uh, a company there, among others, finding oil in Israel's area. And so Israel, exactly like Ezekiel said, has not only become a nation again, she has become wealthy, which is a precursor to the Gog-Magog invasion. And then Ezekiel says something else. Sheba and Dedan, verse 13, and the merchants of Tarshish with all its villages will say, these are the dissenters, uh, Spain and Saudi Arabia. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all of its villages will say to you, that's Gog invading. Have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to to seize plunder? To carry away what? Silver and gold. Look at verse uh, 14. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver. I mean, Ezekiel is on the same page as Zechariah. 
to carry away gold and silver, to take away cattle and goods, to capture great spoil. So not only does the prophecies indicate that Israel will become wealthy, but she will become wealthy in silver and gold. That's what whets the appetite of the nations that will invade, spearheaded by Russia. Now, when you study the third king of the United Kingdom, a man named Solomon, who reigned for 40 years from 971 B.C. to 931 B.C., and you study his empire, where the borders of Israel stretched further than they've ever been, you will see wealth and you will see gold everywhere when you're reading the king's account or the chronicle's account. The question is, where did all of that gold go? That's a great question. Israel didn't take it all into the captivity. Because when you study the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you have very specific references to what Israel took into the captivity and brought out of the captivity. And it pales in comparison to everything in terms of gold and silver that's described in the Solomonic Empire. So here's a great question. Well, where in the world did the gold and silver go? The answer, I think, is that the Israelis, prior to Nebuchadnezzar's invasion, hid it. Because they didn't want Nebuchadnezzar to get his hands on it. And in fact, they did such a good job hiding it, that subsequent generations lost track of where it is. But it's there. It's there, it just has to be uncovered. And... It's just a matter of time before Israel, I believe, unearths a major silver and gold discovery. Um, And there's a lot of things that we could say about this, newspaper articles that we talk about on pastor's point of view, indicating that Israel is getting closer and closer to the discovery of this silver and gold. And once it is discovered with the currencies of the world deteriorating. Um, You bet your bottom dollar, pardon the pun, that Putin or whoever happens to be in charge at that point of Russia will use that as as a justification for this invasion of Israel in the last days. So just keep your eye on Israel and keep your eye on massive silver and gold discoveries. Uh, my friend Bill Perkins, in his books, he's got a three-volume set called Stealing the Mind. I think in volume three he has a little write-up and a chapter on this where the gold is actually hinted at through the discovery of something called the Copper Scroll. And I'll let you go to his writings to get more information on it. But if this happens in our lifetime and a massive gold and silver discovery is found in Israel and the Solomonic gold is discovered, I'm going to tell you something, folks. That is not going to surprise me in the least. 
Because that's what exactly what Ezekiel said would happen. So the nations of the earth are going to come to Israel for their gold and silver. But here's what's very interesting about this. Israel is going to get it all back. The nations are going to take it, but God is going to work in history where the gold and silver is going to go right back into Jewish hands in the kingdom age. Where am I getting this from? It's right there in verse 14. Judah will also fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of the surrounding nations will be gathered. How did the surrounding nations get their hands on the gold and silver? They stole it. And the wealth of the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver, garments in great abundance. The nations thought that they could come to plunder Israel, but Israel ends up plundering the plunderers. Now, if you back up to verse 1, that's the theme of the chapter. Go back to verse 1. Same chapter. Behold, it's introductory. It's explaining what's coming in this chapter. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil, he's, he's speaking to the nations, the spoil will be taken from you and will be divided among you. So you nations that have come against Jerusalem, you think you've got the upper hand. You think you're getting rich. The laugh is on you because everything that you have plundered will be plundered from you, plundering the plunderers, and will will be returned to the Jewish people in the kingdom age in great abundance. So we have the plague, we have the panic, we have the plunder, and then we have the pets. Verse 15. So also, like this plague, will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and the cattle will be in those camps. So the plague's impact is even going to impact the enemy's animals. Now we've talked about Ezekiel 38 and 39. And one of the things it predicts in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is this attack coming against Israel. And the enemy in some situations is actually going to be on horses and horsemen. It's right there in Ezekiel 38 verse 4. I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws. In other words, these nations are going to come thinking it's their motive to to capture the spoil when in reality they're actually executing God's plan to bring Israel to a place of dependence and need so that they will cry out to God and he will answer. But when they come, they're coming on horseback. Ezekiel 38, verse 4, I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws. I will bring you out and all your army, horses, and horsemen. This is exactly what verse 15 is talking about. All of them splendidly attired, 
a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords. Now here's what's um, very interesting about the land of Israel is, and I just had a chance to, to come back from there. Um, we actually took a, a bus ride up into that area, up north. It's a place called the Golan Heights. The Golan Heights is a mountainous region that separates Israel from her northern neighbor, Syria. And by the way, the big three, Russia, Turkey, and Iran, as I speak, have a presence in Syria. The current government of Syria, he is sort of like a puppet. He's being manipulated largely by the big three. And the only thing that separates the big three in Syria from Israel is this mountainous area called the Golan Heights. And you cannot traverse that area in, a, in an automobile, in a time of warfare, in a tank, in a time of warfare. You have to be on horseback. I mean, it's obvious being up there and just looking around. So don't laugh too much because a lot of people do. They laugh at this interpretation of the enemy coming on horseback. Uh, in fact, the more you understand about mountainous warfare and the Golan Heights, the more the whole scenario of them coming on horseback makes complete and perfect sense. In fact, in 1980, and this is a fact, our own government fighting in that region brought in horses from the state of Tennessee. And this is what Ezekiel is speaking of in chapter 38, verse 4. These, this is what seems to be spoken of to some extent there in verse 15. And along comes Donald Trump, who, as you know, is our president. Some would argue he still should be our president, but we won't get into that subject because I don't want to get deleted from YouTube because that's one of the subjects you can't get into or they just take your stuff down. All of these liberals are interested in free speech until you use your free speech rights to contradict them and then they take away your free speech. So this is kind of the tech tyranny, you know, that we are always having to walk this tightrope. But Donald Trump is the one who actually allowed Israel to annex the Golan Heights, that mountainous region. Because prior to Trump doing that, the policy of the United States is the Golan Heights actually belong to the international community. That's what the United States stood on. That's what the United Nations believed. And Trump came along in addition to allowing the Jews or moving our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which recognized Jerusalem as the historic capital of undivided Israel, the second thing that Donald Trump did for the Jewish people is he allowed them to annex the Golan Heights, and he switched the American policy. The Golan Heights belongs to the people of Israel. 
does not belong to the international community. That's not some kind of international zone. That's not no man's land. That belongs to the Jewish people. And as you know, when America does things like that, the rest of the world has a tendency to follow. So other nations started to move their embassies from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And other nations started to recognize Israel's annexation of the Golan Heights. Now, look at Ezekiel's prophecy very clearly, and you'll see that the enemies are coming into the mountains of Israel. It says it over and over again. Well, what mountains? Well, thank you, Donald Trump. Now they've got mountains, at least in that northern area. The Golan Heights belongs to them, and that's the mountainous region that separates them from Syria. The big three, as I've tried to say, have a presence in Syria. So you're you're living in times that, as far as I can tell, are just off the charts, prophetically. Uh, I mean, we are living in prophetically significant messianic times. And yet, what is your typical evangelical church talking about on Sunday morning? Five ways to improve your life or whatever. When you're living in probably the greatest time in human history, prophetically, the pulpits of the evangelical church, I think, should be vibrant and alive with this kind of information. So this explains why there's pets and why there's animals and why God is bringing a judgment on the animals. I mean, the animals are coming into Israel because that's the best way to traverse the Golan Heights. The Golan Heights now belong to Israel. And God puts a stop to it. And it's right there in verse 15. So like this plague will be like the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and all the cattle that will be in those camps. Here's um, a quote from a wonderful book that I'll recommend to you by Paul Lee Tan. Uh, I graduated from Dallas Seminary with his daughter. It's a book called The Interpretation of Prophecy. And he made this statement in this book a couple of decades back. He says in verses like this, Interestingly, these prophesied military instruments, those centuries old, have, have not been made obsolete. And he acknowledges that the horse, quote, quoting him here, for instance, is still used in warfare on certain kinds of terrain. Close quote. So coming in on horses is not inconceivable because the horse is still used in modern warfare on this kind of terrain. And I'm trying to explain to you why things that have happened within the last few years concerning the Golan Heights annexation and recognition makes this horse warfare even more believable. And so God is going to bring a judgment on these animals. So that takes care of the enemy's judgment. We have a plague, a panic, a plunder, and we have some information about the pets.
So one of the questions is, okay, once the kingdom comes, what's worship going to be like? You ever ask yourself that question? I mean, how are they going to worship the Lord in the millennial kingdom with him ruling and reigning on David's throne for a thousand years? Well, we're going to conclude our series in the book of Zechariah next week by studying that last paragraph, verses 16 through 21. And by the way, does anybody remember Zechariah's vocation? It's the same vocation of Jeremiah, and it's the same vocation of Ezekiel. He was a priest. So what a fitting way for a priest to end a book than by talking about ritualistic worship in the millennial kingdom. And what is Zechariah's point when he is addressing the returnees who came back from the captivity? What is he trying to get them to rebuild? Starts with a T. Ends in Impel. He's trying to get them to rebuild the temple. And what a way to end a book by talking about God's glorious purpose for the temple. I mean, do you want to be on the front end of something big? Because God's going to take your humble efforts as you rebuild the temple. And in in history, he's going to sort of push them forward ultimately into the millennial kingdom where there is going to be the house of the Lord. And it's a description there of temple number four. And so that's that's why he ends the book the way he does, as an incentive for them to, gosh, the temple must be important to God. So let's uh, let's start building it now. So we'll take a look at that next next week as we see the, I've got three Ps next week. The Baptists will be really proud of me. They always have their three Ps. I finally lined them up where I have three. I never get them lined up right. The pilgrimage, the punishment, and the purity. So we'll see that next time, verses 16 through 21. We'll look at that, 8 o'clock flat. So it's a good time to dismiss people if they need to take off, collect their children or what have you. And if anybody wants to open it up for Q&A, we can do that also.